Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, I'm not feeling that hip right now because... You know, I, I love music. I love I love classic. I love classic rock. I love Springsteen. I like the Seattle scene. I love uh, the '80s stuff. But I got cast in a video for a guy named Calvin Harris. Now, the lovely Joanne says, "Oh, Calvin Harris is very popular." I have no idea who Calvin Harris is. I go on his website. I find out he's played main stage at Coachella this past Sunday night. And he's playing next Sunday. The guy has four million followers on Twitter. I went to YouTube. The guy had like 36 million views of a video and, and I'm casting, I feel like an idiot. I'm casting this video tomorrow. But the best part about it is my role is as a creepy older guy hitting on a young girl. So that always makes me good that like 30 million people are going to see me as a creepy older guy hitting on a young girl. But anyway, enough about me. We have a great guest, and we're going to talk about music because he got to start music. Uh, we have uh, He's a president of West Coast. Well, you're the president of Omnipop. You're the West Coast I president. Would, I would say I'm the president uh, cutting both coasts, but uh, my partner Tom would prefer that you say West Coast. And it's Bruce Smith. How you doing, Bruce? <laughs> Hi. Good. So you, so you have a background in music. Now, are you, still into the, are you still into the music scene? Do you like new music, or what's your I musical taste? I really never stop following music because uh, music is like comedy it's like anything it's like uh, as as soon as you start talking about what happened uh, 20 years ago 30 years ago you, you realize oh I'm sort of in the process of slowly dying now right you know it's like you, you just lock in on the things that you believe are important and uh, you know everything after that is bad you know I know people who uh, like myself love the Beatles you the Beatles were untoppable uh, and and in many ways they are untoppable, but at the same time, you don't want to stop listening to music when they break up. And right. I know people who feel like they've sort of gone into this phase where nothing's really interesting to them because it can't be as interesting as the Beatles. See, that I know people too. It's like they're very snobbish. Like, oh, you know, I mean, for me, I, I love the Seattle sound. You know, when Pearl Jam came out and the Screaming Trees, mm-hmm. I wasn't a huge Nirvana fan. I'll be honest. People mm-hmm. love Nirvana. Well, I didn't go crazy about well, it. Not so much from me either. But it's amazing, though. I, the, just the reason I listen to the newer music, and I, I just... I, my girlfriend listens to all the newer stuff, and I always crack up because I told her she has an iPod of her 19-year-old niece. Mm-hmm. And just I just for me, a lot of it just doesn't interest me. I don't know. Yeah. It's just the the sound. It's just it seems like you hear one album, it's good, you get excited, then they're gone. It's the, it's the corporate music machine. You know, it, it's grinding out uh, very formulaic ways of you know kind of making hits. And uh, you know, if you started way back when when it was just a, a freer system you really felt the musicians sparking to each other and competing with each other and trying to top each other. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if uh, Pet Sounds yields Sgt. Pepper, then Sgt. Pepper might yield um, Traffic's first album. Right. You know, and, uh, and everybody's trying to do something really unique and not like anybody else. And now the reward seems to be in kind of queuing into somebody who sounds like somebody. Right. Now you you did you were a musician when you were younger. Now your yeah. your father was in the art world. Now did that did a commercial artist? Yeah. I believe he was. Uh, it was like the Mad Men world. You okay. know, it was, uh, it was the Mad Men world of the '60s, and uh, he was an artist, not not a, an ad guy. Uh, but he worked with all those guys. You know, all those. You know, it was very very realistic. Uh, my father didn't wear a hat, so I assume he was the outsider back then. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But. Uh, but it was the three martini lunches and, uh, you know, the uh, beautiful house in the suburbs and the young wife and the young kids. And, you know, I, I watched that show and I go, well, that was really us. That's crazy. E- except we were probably less happy. 
Well, yeah, no. All right, but no, guys, it's Don. I always say it's Don Draper. You know, people love him, and I love the show, but he's just a jerk. I mean, he's he he's, he's a womanizing drunk. He's just he's a, he's an identity theft. I mean, basically, the guy's <laughs> whole thing is and but it's that's what AMC does. They just they make these antiheroes, and you. I think it's because he's so damn handsome. But, I think but, that's but, what it is. But I love it. You know, it's like uh, it really does suck you in, and uh, you know, for every. Uh, kind of movement, you always have like a counter movement. So you kind of wonder like when it's going to be okay to be heroic again in a traditional heroic way. Uh, you know, e- even the the Marvel universe, you know, it's like everybody's got to be flawed. <laughs> right. Everybody's got to have some dark side to them. Now, since your dad was an artist, was art and music around your household, was it encouraging you? I mean, how did you get into music as a kid? Um, you know, neither of my parents were really musical. Um, they They were both very artistic. My mother was actually a great uh just kind of sketch artist in a way uh and uh i I envy her because you know i grew up with all of the paints and brushes and pencils around the house and you know i would pick it up and everyone said ah that that's what bruce is going to go into that's what he's good at and uh, i would go you know it's really kind of tedious for me it's like a slow process um and uh you know, when you're a kid, you never think, oh, well, you know, the easy way to get the girls is become an artist. Right. You know, it's like everybody <laughs> wants to be a musician when they're a kid. All guys, you know, think that's the shortcut. And uh, I started taking guitar lessons when I was 11, started taking keyboard when I was 14. Uh, and I would say by the time I was around 16, I was good and yet as good as I was ever going to get. Okay. So you peaked at 16. I peaked at 16, which which you don't want to do in life. No, no. no is, is that, unless you're a tennis player. But now, <laughs> is, is that uh, why you started a cover band? Because you felt you peaked? Or were you writing? I know in your bio you said you could start yeah. a cover band. Were you writing your own music or were you uh, just doing the later. cover band thing? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think in the beginning, uh, it was just uh, everything I could do to try and play guitar and figure out how to sing at the same time. And once I mastered that, I was in a band for uh, about 10 years, like a, a big East Coast band. We started out in high school, but then we came, became a very big club band, and uh, we played all 60s music um, essentially about a, a decade or so after the music. Okay. So, so it's a, a little weird when nostalgia clicks in that quickly, you know, that, that somewhere in the late 70s, around 1980, that people are ready for 60s nostalgia. And uh, we just found that all the club goers who were like 18 to 22 uh, all had older brothers and sisters. They were sort of exposed to the music in a very peripheral way, like it was part of what was going on around them, but they never quite paid attention to it. And then we just seemed like somehow we magically uh, tripped into the zeitgeist. It's like we would be doing Moni Moni, and then Moni Moni would show up as a Billy Idol song. Right. Well, it's, you funny, it's funny you say that because yeah. we used to go, I used to go to, uh, when I was in college, we'd go down to uh, Stone Harbor in New Jersey, and there's a bar called the Springfield in the Sea Isle mm-hmm. City, and they had a happy hour, and the age was 18 to like 65 because they would play all that music, yeah. and everybody would just get out. It was like four and a half, four and a half, you know, on a Saturday. Everyone's buzzed because it's a Jersey Shore. It's the weekend. And everybody would dance that. It, it didn't make a difference if you were, you know, it what age? Insane. It really was insane. And, and uh, you know, we, we weren't trying to be ahead of the curve. You know, we were accidentally ahead of the curve, you know. So, like, Build Me Up Buttercup was a huge song for us years before something about Mary really revitalized right. the song in the end credits. <laughs> and, and then you see that happen and you go, well, you know, can you really take credit for a prophecy when you're just a cover band right you know? <laughs> it's a little too much so you did that you're playing but then you decide to go to college 
Uh, right, and uh, that's where I studied film and art, and uh, you know, it, it kind of continued the music thing for a while, and then I realized I wasn't a good enough musician to actually be a music major. What made you choose? Because back, you know, people even when I was in college, I think you're a little bit older than me. I, I'm 50. I think you're a few years older than me. Well, let's not assume. Okay, I would say, but I'm saying, but back, back, like even when I was around, there wasn't a lot of people taking film and TV. It wasn't a huge yeah, thing. True. What made you decide? to go into that field did you love tv did you love a median or what made you go I, in, want to do that it's it's really strange because i was very clear-headed in a way long before i ever thought of being an agent um i knew that as i was watching things and you're right i'm a, a couple of years older uh and and that kind of plugs me deep into late 60s kind of 70s early 80s as like the formative time and for me I had a realization when I was very young uh, that I loved comedy and that I loved it more as a consumer than as a guy who was going to be a comedian. Like, I kind of knew that that wasn't the path. Um, but but it was an awakening that you don't think of until you actually say it out loud, which is music in the 60s was the best form of rebellion. It's, okay. There's nothing you could do that would scare your parents more than listen to a Jimi Hendrix record and, you know, or them seeing like Woodstock and he's burning his guitar. You know, it's like that's that's horrible to a generation that grew up on Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett. Um, and uh, I felt like, you know, we had a rebellion. It's very important for every teenager to have a rebellion. But we didn't have a comedy rebellion. You'd sit in front of the TV and you'd watch the same shows your parents watched and you'd see Buddy Hackett and you'd see, uh, mm, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Shelly Berman. Shelly Berman. And, you know, uh, I mean, like, these were not bad comics. And, and uh, in no way am I disparaging them as comics. But, you know, Sid Caesar and Milton Berle and Jack Benny and all of that, it wasn't my generation. And in a way, comedy was experienced in a very kind of uh, nuclear family type of way where everybody from junior to grandma was supposed to really enjoy the same thing. So the revolution came when my band used to always practice on Sundays and um, when PBS imported uh, Monty Python. Okay. You know, so it was like when I was in high school and they imported Monty Python, I think in like 71, 72. Um, and uh, it used to air at 1030 on PBS and, and we, would, we would end band practice to all go up and watch Monty Python on my couch. And on the heels of that, very close on the heels of that, uh, at my college, uh, Le National Lampoon's Lemmings, came through and uh for those who don't know lemmings was actually a takeoff on woodstock uh that starred christopher guest and chevy chase and john belushi and uh the only reason i knew about it is there was a guy from my neighborhood very close by who was the keyboard player in national Lampoon's lemmings so we, we kind of went to see him and for anybody who's ever seen uh, John Belushi do Joe Cocker the best. on, on I mean, Saturday Night Live, killed it. this guy was the Leon Russell to Belushi's Joe Cocker, okay. which is actually what the tour was all about that they were mocking because uh, Joe Cocker did play Woodstock. And, and for many years, you know, Leon Russell was his keyboard player. Um, so um, it was, to me, Lemmings was an eye-opener because it was really, it was the revolution. Not only was Woodstock a kind of flashpoint in the counterculture that would have scared your parents. Here were people just a couple of years later making fun of Woodstock and making fun of the peace love generation and making fun of a bunch of hippies who were, you know, out in the mud getting high. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, in Woodstock they had the, um, 
the, the great announcements that they left in the movie and in the uh, album, you know, and it was like uh, a guy, uh, I think named Wavy Gravy, who was saying, uh, we got the New York Times right here and you're on the front page. And uh, John Belushi uh, kind of parodied that. And okay. goes, uh, we've got the New York fucking Times right here and you're right here on the obituary page. And I thought, well, these guys are taking down the hippies. These guys are my heroes. You right. know? It's like because they're basically saying just because you're young doesn't mean you can't be an idiot. And I was like, that's something that speaks to me. You know, like the idea that you're not just off the hook because you're under 30. You're off the hook because you're actually, you know, on a kind of higher wavelength, not because you're under 30. Right. <laughs> and and uh, I was very much under 30. I was under 20. And I was like, I love these guys. Um and then Saturday Night Live came like a couple of years later, and all those guys were on the air. Uh, Chris Guest wasn't making movies yet, so, you know, that kicked in later. But uh, then SCTV came. So it's like, for me, Monty Python, SNL, SCTV, those, those are really, uh, it's like the comedy revolution. It changed everything. And, and that's what gave kind of voice to a generation where you didn't have to listen to your dad's comic anymore. All of a sudden, you know... Uh, you'd have to go years before you could then turn around and go, yeah, you know, Don Rickles and Rodney Dangerfield did have something really valid going because because you wanted to kick them to the curb. (laughs) So now, you know, after you got out of school, you started booking bands. Now, now you went, but you went to focus on TV and film and then you, you found this love for, you know, the Monty Python, which so many of us did. And and you're right. It it spoke to generation. What made you decide to go booking bands? I mean, was that something that you said you knew because you love music or how? Yeah, it was organic. Uh, You know, none of this could have ever been planned. Uh, When when people come to me for career advice now, I go, well, you know, I can tell you what I can do for you. I can tell you what sort of doors I would open, but I can never actually tell you what your path will be. And if you're looking for somebody to do that, you might need a shrink more than you right. need a, you know, manager or an agent. You know, it's like like nobody can tell the future. It's like the best careers that I've planned out have still gone a different way, even if they succeeded. So, you know, I never could have planned what happened, which is I got slightly disenfranchised from my own band uh, at age 24. And the reason I got disenfranchised is all of my buddies who, you know, I started the band with in high school, one by one all left in college, and I was the last original member, and every time a member left, we replaced them with a better musician until I was now the weakest musician in my own band. Okay. But I was the business guy, so I was sort of an indispensable. I was the guy who got the mailing list out. You know, The reason people showed up is because the mailing list got out. So uh, in, in a way, we had a very sort of uh, happily dysfunctional relationship as we were becoming a really popular band. Like everywhere we'd go, like hundreds of people would show up. And uh, that was valuable. You know, we could kind of call our own price and... It's nice to have a following, but the band members were really very taken with the idea that we had a following, and I think I was never able to forget that we were just playing other people's music, that that it's a silly thing to be uh, allegedly famous for. That's, that's, I've always yeah. wondered that, because you know, there used to be bar, uh, bands back in uh, South Jersey that the same thing. It's like these guys had a following, but I'm like... But they're still groupies. You're playing someone else's music. I went to Starlight Ball yeah. and I saw it was a, a a Journey cover band, and I think it was a, a Poison or whatever cover band. And these mm-hmm. guys are out there and they're selling their albums. I'm like, dude, you're selling an album of other people's music. I Which like, you can't even really do. I know, <laughs> but then it's it's a Starlight Ball. Yeah. Was, you know, selling but, it out of the trunk but, of your car. Yeah, but I'm sitting there going, 
they're gr- and I think what kind of person becomes a groupie of a cover band? It's like at least go be a groupie yeah. of the real band. You know, like say well, I'm gonna I'm gonna. It's just weird. I, I saw what it was. I understood it as it was happening. And uh, I think I was probably being more analytical and standing outside of things, which may have, you know, kind of foretold my future in that I was standing outside going, oh, this is how this thing works. Whereas the band was just all involved in what was happening and uh, got got kind of sucked up in the idea that people were cheering for them. Uh, But but what it is is really very simple, which is uh, you're young and it's a band full of guys and got a lead singer that looks like Kenny Loggins at a point where that actually meant something important. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the girls follow the band, and the girls all want to date the guys in the band, but there's only supply and demand that's reasonable, so most of the girls don't date guys in the band, and they come, and they dance, and they dress hot, and guys come, and they follow those girls. Right. And you create a social scene. A lot of people met and got married around what was happening in my band. And some of it I didn't even know until years later, like, you know, the the internet was still, you know, not anything real. So once it actually showed up and people started communicating, uh, I started to actually, like, just type in my band's name and, you know, somebody would say, I I met my husband Oh, that's cool. That is cool. It's nice, you know, but but it's nice in a a social scene way. You know, it's like you can't actually uh, take it as a creatively valid endeavor. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to my agent. Um, and I said, uh, I'm quitting the band, which terrified him because I was the business liaison. I was the guy he could talk to and make sense out of. And, um, the, uh, the thing that happened is, uh, I didn't really have a plan. And he said to me, well, how'd you like to come work for me? I said, well, I'm basically being driven nuts by five guys and you're giving me a chance to be driven nuts by 50 guys. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, you know. I don't actually have a plan. I'm, I'm going to say yes because it's so absurd and it's the last thing I was planning on doing and I don't have any other idea, you know, uh, except go out and try and get a job and maybe use my college degree, but I had no connections in the film business. So, uh, you know, I'd already kind of surrendered for a few years that I wasn't going to go and become uh, the next Scorsese, you know. It's like I, I had to do what I had to do and I was making about 600 bucks a week playing in the band and the question becomes, how do you make that money doing a real job? Right. I'm not sure I ever actually figured that out working with my ex-boss, uh, but, um, but, but I did okay. And uh, I would still play part-time with my band, and I kind of segued out of it slowly to make sure I had enough money. And, uh, and I ended up being like a Long Island band agent. And, and most of those bands were kind of uh, centered around that area. Maybe they'd work Jersey near you maybe they work the shore maybe they work uh connecticut toad's place um there were some great places you know scattered through new england but uh we found that there were limitations and the limitation was you could only book the band as far as their van would make it okay yeah it <laughs> makes sense yeah yeah these, these are not touring bands and there was no bus and nobody was flying first class you know they they they, they all had a conaline vans so when you're sitting you're booking these bands now when do you meet uh, Tom and Gagno. I mean, is that is in, that in Genio? He would have you. In Genio. I'm sorry. Yes. I thought it was. I see. It's, I always thought it was in Gagno. Soft. It's the lasagna G. I see. I did not know that. That's <laughs> my girlfriend's Italian. Now she'll be pissed at me. She go, Kaki, you're not gonna. Of course, it's in Genio. I've done anything to put a rift between you and your girlfriend today. It's that. It's, yeah, <laughs> no. So how? No, how did you meet him? Uh, I met Tom because uh, he managed a few bands. Um, Tom had gone to school in Pittsburgh, 
and uh, he had hooked up with a band called Thrills there. And um, he actually got them a record deal with a small label that was owned by A&M Records. I think it was called GRP. And um, he brought them to Long Island. Uh, Long Island was just a, a better hub for a band because you could really work all the time. And, um, and, and you know, our circuit was, was really kind of crazy. Like, my band was there, and Thrills was there, and Thrills had a record out that was just getting play in the Northeast pretty much. And Twisted Sister was there, and Cindy Lauper was there with her band Flyer, and the Stray Cats were there. And, you know, they all lived there. They were just locals. Cindy Lauper lived in Queens, and my guitarist, like, knew Cindy Lauper really well. Um, when Kiss, I think, lost Ace Freely, they asked my guitarist to join, and okay. he didn't want to go on the road. You know, so it was all kind of incestuous, you know, where the musicians all knew each other. Um, so Tom's band, Thrills, um, was represented by the same company that booked my band. And um, when I left, uh, <laughs> I did not leave because I was ambitious and I wanted to start Omnipop and take over the world. Um, and if I did, that was a bad plan. But um, I left because the drinking age went up in New York and my boss fell behind on checks. And he was about three weeks behind and that just kept going and going. And then six months later, he was still three weeks behind. And I said to him, uh, you know, if you don't catch up, I'm going to have to leave. And I, I think the bad news here is if I leave and I go into a different business, my ex-band is going to leave the day I leave. They're not right. going to stay here. They're only here because I'm here. And then there was another band that was only there because I was there. And I said, it doesn't matter if I become an accountant. They're not staying. This is not a matter of me threatening you with, if I leave, I'll start my own company. I'm threatening you with, if I leave, those bands will leave. Okay. Um, and he went to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, well, you know, go back and fire him before he quits. Because if you fire him, it'll look better in court. The lawyer was already, like, building up bills. How can I bilk this guy? And, and the lawyer saw a pigeon in my ex-boss, and, uh, and boy, he saw it correctly. Uh, so my boss found himself hiring a lawyer to launch a case against me when I quit, basically kind of uh, circumventing me quitting by firing me just ahead of me quitting. Um, and he could have caught up with me so easily. Like the money he owed me was equal to the commission that those two bands brought in every week. And instead of doing that, he lost me, he lost the bands, and he tried to launch uh, a lawsuit against me for a million dollars to stop me from going into business. And the only reason I was going into business for myself in my living room is because it's the only thing I knew how to do. Right. <laughs> so so uh, I started this in my living room out of necessity, you know, uh, and I worked for my cousins at the time. Uh, they sold leather jackets in indoor malls, so I did that four days a week, and I found out you know, there are salesmen who can sell anything. I'm not one of those right. guys. <laughs> so, so Tom was booking. So when did you partner with Tom? Um, there was a, a third partner, Ralph, uh, that, that very often uh, gets short shrift in the story because he was, he was the guy who stayed in music when me and Tom later went into comedy. Um, so Ralph also worked at the same agency, and uh, my ex-boss was preparing the lawsuit, and he was bringing Ralph to the uh, lawyer to be coached to testify against me. And then Ralph called me up and he said, you know, he's trying to coach me to testify against you, but he still owes me three weeks money. What an asshole. <laughs> this guy's like, what the? So anyway, uh, Ralph quits and joins with me. And now Ralph's working out of my living room with me. And, uh, and then we get sued. 
And, uh, and as we're being sued, uh, my ex-boss realizes, well, you know, now he had two employees. that he, He's got an empty desk, he's got two empty desks. And uh, he asked Tom if Tom would want to go into business with him, and Tom refused. And, and then we ended up talking to Tom, and Tom became the third partner. So you started off in music. Now, how did you make the branch into comedy? Because that, do you, know, you pretty much just handle comics and actors now. Uh, Ralph still... <coughs> Does Excuse band. me, Ralph still uh, handles bands. But so how did yeah. you make the branch? Because now this was this as comedy was starting to boom? Because yeah. it was a little before the boom. And what made you sit there I, and say, I want to book comics? Because you, you liked comedy when you were younger, but the Monty Python, so you, you wanted to cut a edge, and you probably wanted to find comics that would fit into what you would like in your specter. Uh, yeah, I would say that's so, except for um, the only thing that is wrong in that statement is that when you first go out and you see comedy live you get caught up in the audience um, and you get caught up in the audience's reaction. So I would say my taste watching comedy on TV was anything but hacky. Uh, and then as I went out and I actually started watching comedians, I found there was a lot of room for everything initially because it was so fresh. But for anybody who spent a lot of time around comedy clubs, you know that the bar keeps changing. You know, it's like if you're a discerning person with specific taste, um, all of a sudden, all the hacky stuff started to sound bad. Like, like uh, in, the, in the early 90s, I could boil it down to, uh, if comics used the word epilady, the red flag went up. Okay. Uh, if, they, if they used the word kumbaya, the red flag went up. I was like, okay, well, now I'm starting to define, in many ways, um, what it is I'm allergic to, which is I'm allergic to non-originality, to, to the, which runs rampant in the comedy world. But in the beginning, I wasn't that discerning about it. And it was more a matter of, we're trying to book, we're trying to make a living here. Do these people get laughs? And some of the worst comics get huge laughs. Well, I used to play a club, you probably heard of it, Mitchell's in Palmyra, sure. New Jersey. of course. Well, the owner, Joe Donato, bless his soul, was great. But I remember there was this one comic in the Philadelphia area who just was the biggest hack. I mean, just when you sit on the stage, you're going, really? Do yeah. Buffalo have wings? Like, you know, <laughs> you know that whole, those old sure, pits. Sure. And you sit there and we go to him and uh, it was me and another comic were like, why? He goes, look at the room. He's killing and they're drinking. And for us, we would get yeah. frustrated because it was like, well, you know, you can't, I mean, it was just weird because there was so many comics who wanted to do comedy back then, but there yeah. were so many hacks because there was clubs everywhere. I mean, it was like, I mean, I remember playing like JCCs in different places where you just, every place, like you sit there and go a ground, there was a ground round in Wayne, New Jersey and yeah. all these places and you go, oh my God, wait, a Chili's in Deptford, New Jersey's doing comedy, but I guess they needed acts. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, Andy Kinley used to joke uh, about there being like a dry cleaners that used right. uh, stand up comedians, you know, uh, it's, it just got out of hand. You know, a lot of people just found that, like, if they had one night of the week that didn't work and they were a rock club or they were a bowling alley or whatever, you'd put comedy in. Well, now, when you started booking the comics, was that, had the boom started yet or did you just catch it right before? I feel like we actually caught the tail end of it. Okay. Uh, and, and it seems odd because I guess if you put a year on it, the year was probably about 1985 when we got into comedy. Okay. So, you know, you think of the 80s as the boom years, but. I felt like as we were getting in, comics were already starting to lament the downfall, you know, because we were hearing war stories from the comics who had been doing it for 10 years. We were the newbies. And, and they were telling us that, that times were not as good. And uh, I think my assessment of it, like looking back, because like when I was a kid, you know, the only com comedy clubs were really the ones 
that were in New York City. It was like Catch a Rising Star and Danger Fields. And, you know, uh, I, I felt like it, it hadn't exploded yet. But when it did explode, my take on it was that the club owners didn't realize how much of it was happening that had nothing to do with the draw of the comics. They, they wanted to believe, in a way, that the comics were the reason their rooms were full. And as soon as they figured out that their rooms were full because comedy was just big, they sort of turned on the comics and turned on paying them a lot of money. Right. And, and, and that's, uh, I feel like that's the moment we walked in. We, we, it's like being in the real estate market, like, you know, just as like the banks are going down. Right. You know, it's like it, it wasn't the best timing. But, but at the same time, we didn't, uh, we met a lot of people who had these high in the sky uh, kind of expectations of what you get out of comedy, and they were disappointed at the way it was going. We had no history to, you know, we could just start at the bottom and move up. Who were some of your first clients, like the first few clients you signed? Because, I mean, you were, you were out of Long Island, right? Yeah. So there's, you know, I know that originally, I remember there was the stories of the Long Island 11 with, you know, Bob Woods, you know, Barnett. Uh, Bob yeah, Barnett, they, they were all pretty entrenched by the time we started. But who, who were yeah. some of your first clients? Uh, it was mostly Long Island. It's true. Uh, they were, there were six guys at once who approached us, and they knew each other, and they may have even discussed it to some degree. But we had been booking them into colleges and, and into um, Eastside Comedy, which uh, my partner Tom was the booker for at that time. And we had two one-nighters. One was Sand City on the north shore of Long Island. Another one was a place called Shanghai Reds in New Jersey. Um, and so we had places to put people. And we'd been booking musicians into colleges. And the same student activities people booked the comedy shows. So we were able to actually make a living for people we weren't technically representing. We were, we were just piecemealing it. Everything was freelance. Uh, we didn't have, and, and <laughs> with a total lack of foresight, weren't trying to have clients in the comedy world. We were trying to have places to book and then just plug in whatever. Book the best show you can. Um, so six people came to us at the same time, and then we kind of changed our view on it, and that was uh, Richie Minervini, who was the owner of Eastside Comedy, uh, John Bazaar, who was uh, actually a Philly guy, uh, Dan Wilson, who you brought up, um, Billy Garen. I know Billy. Who's a Jersey comic. Uh, and um, Mel... Uh, Melvin George was later. Joe DeLion. Do you remember Joe DeLion? I remember Joe DeLion. I remember Melvin. He was, Melvin he was like a very too. hip music act. Yeah. Uh, magic act, rather. Um, and uh, Jim Myers, who also Klaus. used to did Klaus. I, German I, comic. I remember working with him, and uh, it was like one of my first gigs at the Comedy Factory outlet I was hosting. And I'd never seen his act. Mm -hmm. And, man. Was he doing Klaus then? Yeah. It was so funny just because mm -hmm. when he breaks the character and I'd known about it yeah. but what's amazing to me is you see people who came back and they got fooled again <laughs> it's like they forgot that's, you go that's really a dumb so, audience I mean, I'm saying but it's you know <laughs> but so so you had some good acts so you're sitting there you're booking these guys and now, but you were just agents then right yeah but, but it was a good kind of learning experience for us because it wasn't all about the laughs you know underneath it it was about the tragedy and I won't say who is who but there were only six of them, and you know, one guy struggled with depression, another guy struggled with cocaine, another guy struggled with alcohol, uh, and and you just kind of go, okay, well, this is what feeds uh, the world of comedy. You know, it, it's like there, there's a certain amount of uh, of genuine uh, tragedy and struggle underneath all of this. You know, and, and it was good for us to learn that up front. Uh, I don't think it was good for the or healthy for the people that right. they were going through that, but but it was good for us to kind of uh, you know really kind of take the bloom off that rose and, and just know what it really was. Like, okay, this is not going to be laughs all the time. 
Right. Well, I want to flash forward now because as you're getting bigger and bigger, you decide to come out west. Now, what made you decide to move to Los Angeles and to start your branch out here? Because by that time, you were into management. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, actually, not yet. Okay. Not yet. Um, we were still an agency when we opened up in L.A. Now, we had been booking clubs and colleges for bands and comedians. And, and then, like in the last few years in New York, I was trying to get comedians on TV. And I felt like everything I'm trying to get is in Los Angeles. It was uh, Comic Strip Live. It was uh, Star Search, Evening at the Improv. None of this was happening in New York. And, and, and I think the only one, like maybe the early New York one, was Caroline's Comedy Hour. Do you remember, com- yeah. was it Comedy Tonight? Wasn't that a... Bill Boggs? <laughs> was, was that, that Bill yeah, Boggs yeah, yeah. Tonight? I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like the one thing. It was like everyone, like all that was New York before com- I was doing it. Okay. I, I used I to s- watch that at home. I think it was like 11 <laughs> o'clock. It was syndicated. And uh, that was where I saw a lot of these guys, like uh, John Mulrooney, for the first time, you know. But um, uh, the the thing about going to L.A. was um, I felt like our office was very successful and everybody was booking a lot and booking a lot and booking a lot. But uh, I felt like I'd lost touch with the whole thing that I started out with, which was, you know, I'm a kid. I'm watching what's on TV. I wanted to put something on TV that was as interesting to someone else as what somebody else had put for me when I was a teenager. Something that would, would speak to me, something I could be proud of, uh, something that wasn't just, you know, kind of randomly there, but something that I knew had my fingerprints on it and wouldn't have been there if I didn't put it there. Um, you know, so, so in a way, I was kind of thinking sort of pseudo-producer-like, Right. Um, although I never would have called it that at the time. I just wanted to get people on TV. So I um, started taking trips out to L.A., and I would always come, go out there with a client. Um, so I made, like, uh, one trip with John Bazaar, one trip with Mike Sacconi, who was our client, uh, Patty Rossborough, maybe you remember. Hey, I remember yeah. Mike's been yeah. on the show. Mike Sacconi's yeah. been on the show, too. Yeah, Mike lives right here in uh, Burbank. Yeah. Is he? Yeah. I, 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 I think so. I don't oh, know. Oh, maybe. I don't know. You I, could be right. Everyone lives, I could be wrong. Everyone is, you know, it's always crazy. Don't Don't ever say I I will. I, I know. It haunts it's, you. Not, it's, it will haunt you. It will haunt people. <laughs> Cooper Talk will be canceled. I will not get any edit, more guests. Edit that. <laughs> so, so you so, brought out you brought out clients trying to get them on TV. Or? Right. So, so uh, eventually, uh, in in 1990, I moved to LA and uh, franchised as an agent and opened up a theatrical division. And and then you know for the first few years, I was really just trying to get comics on TV. And then I felt like, well, you know, there's there's a thing that you don't think about until you're actually doing it, which is most comics actually have not had any acting training whatsoever, so you're just crossing your fingers that people will be natural actors. Um, and often you're crossing your fingers in vain. So uh, I, I think I started to kind of branch it out and you know look for more comedic actors, look for more uh, sketch people. You know, Ultimately that kind of led to the groundlings and uh, I had I had people in the comedy world who had recommended Oscar Nunez before he got into the Groundlings, and then when he got into the Groundlings, um, and he was in the Sunday Company, I would go down every week to watch Oscar, and his Sunday Company was him, Cheryl Hines, uh, Will Forte. You know, there's some great people in right. there, and um, we started working with Cheryl, and um, we actually signed a, a whole bunch of people. I don't know if you would know Regan Burns. Uh, he's yeah, currently on a show called Dog with a Blog right. on Disney. But, uh, but, you know, Regan works all the time. And, and these guys, you know, we found that the thing that you had with the groundlings and with the uh, people who were improv trained is they were much better actors than comics b- because they were kind of trained to be in the moment and kind of trust themselves. And, you know, they had a, a strange amount of commitment. They were always very well prepared because um, groundlings is a good boot camp. It's very competitive, very hard to move up. 
And uh, if we were seeing somebody, somebody at the Sunday company level, probably been in Groundlings for at least three years. Okay. So, uh, you know, you had to kind of fight your way to the top. And uh, if it says anything about the Groundlings, someone like Oscar Nunez never made it to the main company. Um, you know, he, he can make it to the office <laughs> exactly <laughs> for well, nine that's... years, but but he couldn't make it to the main company of the Groundlings. And uh, it's because of the competitiveness of it and the politics of it and uh, all these other things that are so hard to explain, even to people who are on the inside and live it. You know, they 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 all dread the vote. Well, yeah, it's a lot of it. Yeah, that's that would yeah. sort of suck. You know, there, but there's yeah. pol- there's politics and club bookings for comedy too. I mean, yeah. it, it's anywhere. You know, sure. they get people say, oh, they have their boys. You know, Scarpati has his boys. You know, or, right? You know, and that just that just happens. But so now now you're doing the agency thing. Now now when do you sit there and say I want to become a manager and explain the difference between an agent and a manager that people don't know? Uh, well, technically, I mean, there, there is a. I find that the lines have gotten blurrier and blurrier in practical application. But uh, there is a technical explanation that agents are licensed and bonded with the state. Um, they were, when I moved out, they were franchised with both SAG and AFTRA. And uh, you would franchise with the Writers Guild if you represented uh, writers, if you had a lit department. But um, uh, years later, uh, the agents couldn't come to terms with SAG. So they have an agreement with AFTRA, but they don't have an agreement with SAG. So most agents don't use SAG contracts when they sign their clients anymore. They use uh, what's called a general services agreement which is kind of written in a very similar fashion to the SAG agreement, except uh, the word SAG doesn't appear. <laughs> right, okay. So, um, but but uh, the agent world, and this always appealed to me, had rules. Like it had hard and fast rules. And, and if a client ever tried to screw you out of commission, you could go to SAG or AFTRA and waive this contract, and, and they would enforce those rules. Um, so there was something about rules that always sounded like, okay, there there's boundaries here. People can't screw you and for anybody who's ever been an agent nobody gets screwed more than an agent gets screwed it's like um if if you discover somebody and you work really hard and you make them famous there's a fairly good chance that somebody's going to come and try and lift that client and there's a fairly good chance that when that moment comes and somebody whispers in that client's ear the client will succumb right you know they, they never thought it would happen so they start building this reservoir of logic as to why they're not screwing the person who gave them the career. And it, it's like, um, in some cases, you'll find that people think that they're graduating. Like, you know, if you helped a first-timer, you, if you were somebody's first agent, then you were like public school, and now they're going to junior high school, or you were high school, and now they're going to college. And, and they, they really build this reasoning in a strong way that they were graduating. And I would counter with, if I have you on NBC or ABC or CBS... Do you think that there are other networks that exist only in the clouds on Mount Olympus right. <laughs> that that CAA can see that I, I'm not seeing? And the thing also is you 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 don't have a huge huge client list. So you I mean For an agency we had a fairly small client yeah, list. It was about fifty. Yeah, and that's nothing. I yeah. mean, that's like out here. It's like I mean, CAA. It's like if you saw, if these people sign with CAA, guess what? You're not getting the attention because yeah. you know you six of the agents are working with Brad Pitt or whoever's with it. You guys, you're well, just like even though the name. But that's the thing people don't understand is the name doesn't always correlate to more success because when the name's bigger, it means if you're not bigger, you're not going to get the attention. You might as well just be with a, you know, I mean, and people don't get right. that. You might as well just be a new person coming to Hollywood and signing with a client with 50, I mean, it's just, it's crazy like that. I've come up with a very profound theory lately. Uh, you're familiar with the pre- Peter Principle. Yes. yes. Uh, so the Peter Principle, for anybody who doesn't know, is uh, 
you work your way up to your own level of incompetence. If, right. you, if, you're, if you're good at your job, people just keep throwing work on your desk until you're absolutely bad at your job. Um, the Hollywood version of the Peter Principle is you work your way up to the level where somebody's ignoring you again. It's like you start at a place where it's like, please just pay some attention to me. Will somebody throw me a life raft? Will anybody help me? And then um, suckers such as myself say, I will help you. Right. I will, I will throw you that <laughs> life raft. And uh, then you get a lot of attention and you realize the thing that's been deeply missing in your life with all this attention was the old days where you didn't get any attention at all. You know, and what this plays to really is the unspoken rule of show business, which is a lot of people who have bravado and are film stars and are TV stars have low self-esteem. And there's no escaping it. it it's built into a lot of the actor dynamic. Uh, and, and there's a compensation, you know, where it's sort of like you're trying to make up for something in a way, uh, hiding in these characters. And um, that low self-esteem drives you to the bigger agency where once again you will be ignored. Right. Where, where things will be just like they were in the beginning, where, where now you're nobody, even though if you had stayed where you were, you would have been somebody. Now, you mentioned Oscar Nunez, how he got the office. And now, as a management company, it must feel great when your person gets... I know because Kate, sure. Kate Flannery is on the show, and she said for the first season of The Office, she still kept her waitressing job. I mean... She, she was wise. I, I was saying, <laughs> but then, then it just became, you know, giant. Well, you know, the timing. It was like they, they put them on mid-season, and it was six episodes, and the ratings were very, very bad. Uh, I can't even remember, like, what it was up against. Like, you know, you always have, like, this kind of one-hour comedy block, and uh, the other show in the comedy block was struggling, too. Um, but, um, Steve Carell hadn't broken through yet. He was just a guy who had been on the daily show and it was so on the verge of cancellation and none of, for anybody who's ever watched the office, there's two tiers, you know, there, there's the first tier of the people in the main credits like Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski and Carell and Rain Wilson. And then the second tier was everybody else, you know, it's just, just this over sprawl of a cast, you know, that was like 17 people. And everybody was being paid like a co-star except for that top tier you know so they they really found like a money management way of being conservative with the whole thing in the beginning before it got off the ground and then after those six episodes which was really on the verge of cancellation that summer the 40 year old virgin came out and, and then steve carell's face was everywhere on billboards and that just changed everything well, for you, it must be great when you see a client. Now, now, are you the one who breaks the news if they get the show? Like, like I know you just said you went yeah, through pilot typically. season. And now, I mean, that must just be, for a lot of these people, just must be, you must be like the, the tooth fairy you're when Santa they're a Claus. kid. Because yeah. it's like, you're coming in, you're going, you have, even if it's a pilot. I mean, that must be, yeah. does, that, does that make you feel so much, you know, feel great at what you, for what you do? You live for those moments. You know, you, you really do. Um, I, I can't imagine that anybody who's done my job doesn't. Because you spend so much time in flux and trying to get something going. And somebody goes out on an audition and they come back and they tell you, Man, I hit it out of the park. That was incredible. And then you never hear a word about it again. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you realize, like, I can build up a thick skin because I'm one step removed. But for the actors, it's brutal. It's just the worst thing in the world. It's like you go in there and you think you really scored only to find out that what you thought happened didn't happen at all. 
Well, they, they always say that. A lot of people say, you know, they, they sit there and they'll walk out of auditioning and go, man, I sucked. And they'll get the call or the same thing as you say, yeah. oh, man. And I see, I always hate that, like, especially on Facebook. I hate yeah. when I see comics always going, I killed it. And it's like, no, I've seen your act. You're not killing it. And, <laughs> and, and I always sit there and go, and guess what? It's like the old thing I sit there and now you see people go, oh, yeah, I'm headlining this gig. No, you aren't. There's eight acts. You're doing 15 right. minutes. So headliners are the guys that, you know, I mean, like all the your first clients we talked about who yeah. would sit there and do, you know, Johnny Bizarre, make stuff up that rap or whatever. They would just yeah. they would just kill. I mean, like it wasn't like they would kill for like 45 yeah, I mean, you're, minutes you're, to you're an listening hour. to the audience, you know, so the audience is telling you you're great. And then you come to Hollywood and it seems like everybody's sort of telling you you're great, but then not acting on it, like right. not, not actually pulling the trigger on the thing that's your break. Uh, and they just tease it along. Uh I was listening to the show you did, uh, and I think it was just last week or two weeks ago with uh, Kathleen Rose Perkins. Right. Now, I knew her when she was just starting out. Like, all that stuff she was talking about with Fighting Fitzgeralds and the uh, the show, the first pilot that was based on her boyfriend's buying a house. Well, her boyfriend was my client. Okay. So uh, I put him on Fighting Fitzgerald. I remember he put in the word to get Kathleen on the show, and that was, I think, maybe her first acting gig. Might have gotten her her SAG card. And when I was listening to her talk about all of the uh, pilots that didn't hit in the intervening years, I'm going, if people only knew how this was such a, a typical story, but when you talk to actors, most actors would kill to have that story. Right. They would kill to have the story about being defied with the big time because you had the near big time. You know, you didn't get on the air, but you got to make the pilot. And somebody else was listening to that story going, boy, I didn't even get to make the pilot. Right, and that seemed like when she said rules of engagement when she got fired, you know, yeah. it's like when they fired three of the people. To them, it's devastating. But you're right. There's probably there's people who are like, well, at least they got that far, right? So, so it's always pressing down on the actor to the point where the actor wants to be a series regular. If the series regular defies them, they are happy to get guest star roles. If the guest star role defies them, uh, they'll take the co-star role. But it's not what they were going for, you know. And and then you you have to sort of decide, uh, as with the limbo rock, how low can you go, right? You know. Uh, just, just how low is too low to where you're not even really in the business? Well, so I'm, I was reading your uh, biography that you sent me. Is, is it a biography? Or was it, yeah, it's a, I, it's, I like uh, to call it a biography. Yeah, it is a biography. I think I coined that term. It was great. It was because <laughs> you never know because when people send stuff, like I usually do my research and, and people have websites, but as I said, because you're in management, if I sit there and I Google, I'm not going to, if I Google Bruce Smith, I'm going to get the the guy from the Buffalo Bills, of course, it's going to be my first thing. <laughs> well, but, you know what? That was the terror of the internet, which is when I first Googled my name, I had to get through hundreds of pages about the Buffalo Bills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but now it says you, uh, you... By the way, keywords apparently had not occurred to me yet. Right. Type in Bruce Smith, Omnipop, and see how right. that comes up. <laughs> the guy from the Buffalo Bills. Who knew? <laughs> um, now it said you also got into some producing things. Now, was, it, was that because you wanted your creative side to come back or just get involved with it? Or why did you decide to get into producing some certain things? Uh, it was organic and, and probably uh, the question I, I didn't dance around but just ignored about uh, becoming a manager... It happened at exactly the same time. Uh, I'd been trying to sell a show with Oscar Nunez. What, what happened is is that Oscar had done the last two episodes of the first season of Reno 911. And uh, Tom Lennon, God bless him, like he wouldn't know me if, if I tripped on him outside the studio. But Tom Lennon called up uh, the head of Comedy Central Creative at the time, Lauren Correo, and he goes, I know you think we're great. This guy's a genius. <laughs> and, and he really just sang Oscar's praises. And, and, and it, for anybody who's ever seen those two episodes of Reno, Oscar has a bigger part than anybody in the cast in those episodes through ge their generosity. That's not typical of the way they did guest stars on the show. 
but they just fell in love with Oscar and they, they just kept beefing it up. And um, Comedy Central called us in for a meeting. And because they wanted to have everybody in the meeting, the meeting was one month out from when they called me up. And uh, I knew Oscar, you know, for years at that point. And I know Oscar's like, in a way, he's kind of a low-key guy. Like, you know, um, there's qualities about Oscar that are very sort of Peter Sellers-like in a way, in that you would sort of uh, project things onto him as opposed to uh, him actually giving you that information. Um, and, uh, and and he's sort of very clever that way, but it's really just who he is. And... Um, I felt like uh, we're going to go into this meeting and they're not going to get that. They're okay. just they're just going to see an essentially quiet guy when they've been told that they're meeting a comic genius. And uh, I said to Oscar, why don't we shoot something? Why don't we just really like put a mini pilot together? And he was actually at the time about to shoot a show with a bunch of his friends, um, like like only like a weekend out, um, and. Uh, they were going to shoot like behind the scenes at a reality company or something like that. And I said, you know, there's, there's been a lot of those pilots. I go, I've actually got an idea. And, and it's an idea that's kind of been floating around for a while in my head that nobody's ever done a show at a network about the network. And, and I pitched them the idea of, you know, let's, let's do a show called Decentralized. And it will be about life at Comedy Central. And some of you will play the execs and we'll call in our friends who are actually people on the network. So they would play themselves, kind of Larry Sanders style. And uh, we'll, we'll go in like a surprise attack. You know, we'll, we'll get inside like a Trojan horse and, and then show them this thing that's all about them. And um, we did it as like an improv type thing, like a, a soft scripted Curb Your Enthusiasm type of thing. Uh, and we shot it on a weekend in an office building out in, I think it was Woodland Hills. And we just had the building for a Saturday. Uh, and uh, Damon Jones was uh, the guy who shot it and edited it. He's a groundling friend of Oscar's uh, and just uh, created the show that's on USA that went into production now called uh, Benched. Um, that Oscar's actually, that'll be his next project. Okay. Uh, along with Maria Bamford and Eliza Coop and uh, Jay Harrington. It's a great cast. And uh, But this was, you know, when Damon was just first picking up a camera and shooting things and editing. And uh, Damon was great to collaborate with. And we, we put this thing together. And we made like a 12-minute presentation. And it really got traction at Comedy Central. Everybody loved it. Everybody loved the idea of doing a show about Comedy Central. And I was, you know, as like an ex... When you're a film TV major, all they do is teach you theory. So as like a guy who's like loaded up to the eyeballs with theory, I'm going, I really... If I came out of college understanding anything, it wasn't how to make a movie. It was what makes a critic happy. Okay. That was all I knew. I really knew for sure. And I go, this is the kind of thing critics fall over themselves to write about. You know, it's like if a network was willing to mock themselves that openly. And I said, nobody's ever done it. And, of course, years later, 30 Rock really did do it. And I don't think we could have done it any better. Uh, I, we would have been lucky to be in the ballpark. But, uh, but this was at least, you know, five years before that. And um, it, was, uh, it was very exciting. Like, we thought we were going to sell it. And it kind of got up to the top to the person who the whole action started with, Lauren Correo. And Lauren had had a bad experience doing a show about show business. Um, and uh, it was, I can't remember what it was. Oh, it was for ABC. And it's a very interesting little footnote in showbiz history. It was a show called Wednesdays at 930 that ran Wednesdays at 9.30. Okay. And it was a show about a network, and John Cleese played uh, like a Rupert Murdoch type of guy, and uh, the head of the network, I think, was Ed Bagley Jr., if I remember right. 
but it was so short-lived, and Lauren was the producer of that before she went to work at Comedy Central, and her thing is shows about show business, bad news, don't do it, <laughs> and uh, we, we, we just couldn't push it through. But we kept going back to Comedy Central, and we kept bringing them other little videos and other little pilot presentations, and we were very close to selling a show about the uh, parole system. Um, and uh, it was uh, Oscar Nunez, it was Regan Burns, uh, Jim Rash was involved at the time, um, Kevin Ruff was uh, one of the guys working with us on it. And, you know, so it was a very groundling heavy cast. And we went in and, uh, and we had this pitch on the books. Like it was, it was, the pitch was like going to be like about a week out from when I became a manager. I became a manager basically because the, the ground beneath me just gave. It's like my commercial agent uh, quit because she was taking an ad, uh, taking a job with an advertising agency, and she gave me nine days' notice. My assistant was eight and a half months pregnant and about to leave. Um, my personal appearance agent had worked for me for 17 years, and he was getting offers from everybody in town to build personal appearance departments at UTA or ICM or whatever. And uh, I just felt like it was the perfect storm. I had always talked about being a manager, and, and now I was literally being forced into it. Okay. Because if I didn't make the switch at that moment, what would have happened is my agency would have folded. I, I would have lost clients in a panic, like a like a, a Wall Street panic as people ran for the doors. Um, and uh, I, I saw it coming, and I, I basically blocked it by becoming a manager. Uh, it was misdirection, if you will. <laughs> now, now we have a, we only have about seven minutes left. Um, how do you find your clients, and is, do you sit there and do people come to you, or do people tell you? Because it's always, you know, your clients all seem uh, very hip, uh, very, you know, just not like not hot by, but you know, comedy. But but how how do you find your clients now? Do you scour, or do you say, you know what, I'm just going to concentrate on my clients I have and really push them? Uh, I would say the huge disappointment in answering that question is that you would think that if you represent a comic that has the kind of uh, you know burn career burn of what Maria Bamford's doing or what Doug Benson's doing you you would think that that would automatically draw in a very hip type of comic and yet I would say most of the submissions I get are very very clubby comics that are the exact opposite of what Maria Bamford is or Doug Benson is in the sense that they're not in any way unique voices they're very generic voices so I mean the good thing about having that computer on your desk is that you don't have to give the personal time that you used to like if somebody said come out to a club and see right. me when somebody says come out to a club and see me I just go right to a video online and I go you couldn't even get past hello without losing me I'm so glad I didn't dev devote a night to going out to see you. <laughs> because uh, what used to happen is uh, I would go out to see comic. The comic who invited me invariably was never the comic I ended up going with. And uh, I would just stay and sit and watch all the other comics. And, and eventually, you know, some gold nuggets uh, emerge. Um, but it's much easier these days to just kind of um, wait and pick your moments. It's like, as far as comics go, I'm set. I don't really chase it right because of maria and doug and andy kindler and jimmy pardo and bill dwyer and they're all such singular voices that it's very hard to please me when it comes to comedy like, like they they are the standard that i'm matching against um and uh invariably i'll be disappointed and, and yet i don't want to be what we were talking about earlier with music i don't want to be the guy who's kind of hanging on to 
something that, uh, you know, all those people go back 15 years with me or 20 years with me, so you're afraid of something new. Um, you know, we have comics that we're developing that are, are on the newer side, but I'd rather develop somebody who will listen to me right. than actually go into a club and kind of find somebody who's, like, already a headliner and you're trying to tell them to do something differently. Right. It's, it's actually tougher. Like, oh, yeah, know, it is, because they're, they're setting their ways. Yeah. It's like anything. It's like yeah. they, their feeling is if it's, not, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, right, and that's right. the thing. And, and they're saying, we're headlining. But a lot of times people don't get that. They're, they're very stubborn, because yeah. and it's the ego. And they yeah. don't. They don't want to say, "Oh, oh, wait, you don't think my stuff? Well, you don't think my stuff's good?" But I headline, you know, all these. I exactly. Yeah, yeah. But the good thing about now with the internet and everything, I was going to say, when you you know you don't have to go to clubs and stuff. Well, the bad thing is you don't get as many uh, video cassettes because I mean I'm sure you used to get a ton of them. Remember? I mean, uh, and, yeah, you know the the VHS <laughs> format, not so much anymore. But that was you. I, I still I mean, get a lot of eight tracks. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> no, but the comics used to send them out, and we always knew the club uh, owners or the bookers or whatever would yeah. sit there and put the tape on them and just well, reuse them. You, the thing I, I loved about VHS tapes, like when you used to send them out for actors uh, or comics, is that you could see exactly the point where somebody got disinterested when they returned the tape to you. It's like they never rewound, so you'd go, okay, they watched two minutes and they checked out. <laughs> We only have a few more minutes. What's coming up for you? And what's going on with the uh, with the agency right now? Uh, well, you know, uh, it's uh, it's in a good place. We've had a good year. Uh, there's there's a lot of things that you can only chalk up to luck, and and that's uh, very depressing to me because I always want to think skill will override everything. Uh, you could have the same skills and have a terrible year, and that would be last year for me, <laughs> where you know I couldn't couldn't buy uh, a pilot um, if I was rich. But um, I think. Um, you know, this year things just kind of fell in place and a lot of stuff just worked. And uh, my client, Doug Jones, is going into uh, another season of Falling Skies on TNT. And uh, as I said, Damon Jones, who is this groundling guy we knew years ago um, with um, Michaela Watkins, created this show for USA Network uh, called Benched. And uh, it's courtroom comedy and uh, Maria Bamford and Oscar Nunez are in that. And my client, Cooper Barnes, just got picked up for 20 episodes of a Nickelodeon show created by the great Dan Schneider. Okay. For, for you iCarly fans. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just uh, every once in a while you get on a roll and uh, everybody's in production and it, it feels good, you know. And you know it won't last forever, but uh, you blind yourself to that. Do you, you ever play music anymore? Uh, yes, yes. Actually, when I go back to Long Island, uh, all of the original members of my band from high school still have a weekend band. So uh, I try and uh, find myself back there when they have a gig because they, they'll tend to go out like three times a month. Do you and, dig it? Uh, yes, but uh, just for the fun of playing with them. When I look at the audience and I kind of go, oh, this is why I left. You know, it's like uh, I, this isn't the audience that I thought I was going to get as a rock and roller. <laughs> you it's, know, it's like the audience is all aged with them. But I just, you must love, though, getting on stage because that's what I mean. You basically, that's this whole journey started from you playing the guitar i mean when you think about your whole it's great and, to go full and you circle. must just love it to sit there and go wow okay now I'm, I'm 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 out here in la i'm coming back to long island it must be a great feeling for you the thing i do every year and and it's it's probably the most fun uh in terms of like reminding my own clients that i'm a creative person is that uh every year i'll go back and uh one of my ex-band members has a basement recording studio and uh he'll just do a guitar and a click track and i'll do the vocals uh to a song could be a cover song usually uh and uh and then uh, i'll overdub some vocals and then when i'm gone he'll pad it out and do all the other instruments and uh we have like a finished recording which we couldn't have done 
25 years ago. We, we just didn't have the wherewithal or the equipment to do it. Uh, and everything was a track and it took too long and the band would fight and we always just go our different ways and not accomplish anything. And yeah. now we can make a finished product. I, I, I want to thank you for at the wrap up. I want to thank you for coming on. It was great talking to you. Oh, same here. And uh, people, uh, don't forget, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Also, go to coopertalk.net. I have about 245 episodes up there. Also, if you go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio, type in one word, Cooper Talk. If you have an Android tablet or phone, uh, go to the Google Play Store. You can type in Cooper Talk. You can get my app. Send me an email, cooper at indie100.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, next Next week, I have the very uh, two great actors. I have Reed Diamond and I have Jerry Burns. I think that's how I pronounce it. It's J E R E. I'm guessing it's oh, Jerry. From Justified? Yes. I'm, oh, I'm guessing that's his guy. name. That's how you pronounce it. I have him. So keep listening. Uh, yeah. And send me an email, Cooper at Indy 100. I am Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your.